All right, guys. So if you're a new listener, thank you for tuning in to my regular listeners. Welcome back. Um, I am still on my Osho binge. Um, and I just wanted to do an episode to share what I have learned from him since the last episode. Um, for those of you who are just now tuning in over the past month, and some change, maybe two months, I randomly stumbled across, randomly, (laughs) things aren't really random with my life, but I randomly stumbled across um, the works of Osho, started reading the Dhammapada volume one, and from that point on, I just went from book after book after book, and I have been taking bits of information that I have picked up from listening to his lectures and trying to share them with you guys, Um, and also, you know, gently encouraging that you guys put aside any sort of preconceived notion, um, notions that you may have of Osho and actually just listen to his content with an open mind. Um, if you don't consider yourself a spiritually inclined person, understand that this guy does have a background in philosophy. That's what he studied at uni for. And his approach reads to me, in my opinion, comes off as a philosophy professor. Are there things that he said says that are problematic, of course, um, but, you know, nobody's perfect. Um, so I, I strongly encourage you guys to check out his works. If you have any questions that like about, you know, what I think is the best Osho book to start with, I personally enjoy the Dhammapada volumes. I am on volume... Leave three right now. Yeah, volume three right now. Um, but there was also, I think I recommended The God Conspiracy was very good. Um, there was another one about wisdom. It's called The Book of Wisdom. That was really good. The, uh, the Path of Love is really good. So I am not pushing Osho in order for you to, for you guys to become, you know, Oshites or whatever the, you know, whatever people who follow him call themselves and I'm not pushing him in order for you guys to become Buddhist or even you know Taoist or anything of that nature um like I said if you listen to him he you know the guy's very straightforward very honest um tells a lot of inappropriate jokes inappropriate jokes um but to me he's very straightforward and down to earth what I enjoy about him is the he challenges the status quo you know there, there are just certain things in the way he delivers um his observations about society, um, it's just it's just refreshing to get a different perspective than the programming that we receive and we have received, you know, from, you know, as kids or whatever and, and into young adulthood and even now as adults, you know, we're, we're, we're bombarded with a particular mindset of how we're supposed to be. And what is great about him and his works is that he does you know, challenge you to look at things from a different perspective. One controversial quote, potentially controversial um, uh, mindset perspective that he shared in one of his talks, for example, was the concept of um, he encourages infidelity and not just for the man, but for a woman as well. Um, he says, you know, it's boring to eat the same thing, <laughs> to, to eat the same thing every day. And he says, even to a certain extent, that having and encouraging affairs actually makes your normal, you know, day-to-day relationship, makes you appreciate your day-to-day relationship. You know, take that obviously with a grain of salt. Um, (laughs) I don't know if I would, you know, advise that people actively seek out affairs. But 
you know, to each their own and it's your choice and, and it's your life. But it's those kind of mindsets that that you hear from him, those kind of ideas that you hear from him that even if you don't agree with him 100%, it's just something that you don't hear, you know, and that to me is what I mean, that it's by it being mind expanding and thought provoking, you know, because he says, um, the reason why a lot of people aren't happy in their marriages is because of all of the restrictions that are imposed upon us as to what our relationship is supposed to be like, what a marriage is supposed to be like, and things of that nature. So that's why I recommend him. Um, for those of you who are curious, uh, what books have I finished since the last recording last week? Um, I have finished um, Philosophia Ultima, and now I'm halfway through the Dhammapada volume I think last week I was on the Buddha said and the Sufis, um, the people of the path. So anyway, um, I bring all of that up to kind of set the stage for new listeners um, and, you know, regular listeners as well as to me sharing what I have learned in those these few books that I've been listening to over the last couple of uh, weeks. And um Today, I really want to talk about perfectionism and criticism and creativity and even shed, shed some light rather into um, the, the fall of man and knowledge and um, shame and things of that nature. All ideas that were inspired by listening to Osho's talks. So um, let's start with perfectionism. Um, being a type of neuroticism. Now, that's not an original idea on my end. It's something that um, Osho echoed literally as I'm in the middle of painting. I'm like, I'm I'm working on this. I'm working on this piece, and I'm working on her. I think it was her dress or something like that. And I'm like struggling to blend, 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 and have it be like really tight. And when I paint, you know, especially in the past, my paintings have been really tight. Um, and as I'm painting, I'm working on this piece, I'm listening to him, and he's talking about, he's answering a question that was posed by a German. And the German basically asks about perfectionism. And he basically says, like, it's, it's a type of neuroticism. And what he said that literally made me pause as I was painting and, like, look, step back was, nobody on this earth is perfect. None of us. And the fact that we aspire for perfection is a type of neuroticism. If you believe in God, um, and that's my preface, he's saying that God... If God wanted you to be perfect, he would have created you perfect. So we are supposed to be imperfect. That's kind of part of what makes us what we are. Um, and that made me like really like pause and reflect. Like, okay, first of all, why, why, how, how do you define perfect? What, what about this piece? What, what do you need to achieve with this piece that will make you look at it and go, okay, I've hit the nail on, on the head. Like, this is perfect. And who's the judge? Are you the judge? Are you the one that's judging this piece? That's like, okay, I think it's perfect. Or are you somehow trying to project yourselves into the minds of potential audience and ask and, and imagine more or less how they're going to judge the piece, right? And at the end of the day, if if you're trying to do this mental gymnastics in the, in the while you're in the process of creating, you're really going to stifle yourself creatively because you have no idea what people are thinking. You can't project yourself into a total stranger or a group of strangers' minds um, in order to, you know, create something that they won't judge, you know, unfairly or harshly. And at the end of the day, people are so judgmental 
that it really doesn't matter what you do. You could you can paint something to the point where it looks photorealistic and there's still going to be people out there who are going to say, why do you need to paint something that looks so realistic when my camera can do the same thing, right? Which is mostly just uh, jealousy um, because they're incapable of doing the same thing. I want to marry that idea with another quote of his, which he said, creators don't criticize. Um, that I, I really had to let marinate because I consider myself a creator. I'm an active um, artist. I paint all the time, as you guys know. And of course, I have a podcast and I write and I draw and all of that. So I'm constantly creating. Um, early listeners know that I always advocate do not consume, create, right? It's, a, it's, it's just a good expression of energy. It makes you feel good. It's cathartic. Um, it's just good for your soul, to, especially in a society that's largely driven by mass consumerism for you to actually create. It's, it's good for you. It's good for the heart. It's good for, for just, it gives you a reason to get up in the morning and go. So if you can get yourself in a habit of just continuously creating something rather than consuming, it also, you know, it's good for, it's good for you. It's, you know, to me, it's a, it was a cure for my depression. Um, so just a recommendation. But the idea of creators don't criticize. When I heard that, I really had to pause and reflect because as somebody who considered themselves a creator, I was continuously and in a constant state of criticizing other people. Um, my regular listeners and early listeners have, like, you could literally go back to earlier um, episodes and listen to just how harsh and criticize and, and critical I was. And, and I'm saying that only for the sake of this argument, I'm not judging myself unfairly, um, by saying that I am very mindful and aware of the fact that that's how the majority of us operate. <laughs> Case in point, just go on social media and read through the comments. Um, that's just what we're programmed to do. One, we are socialized to expect perfections from our perfection from ourselves, and two, we are programmed to expect perfection from other people. And when they fall short of that, the way our ego kind of satiates itself is by, you know, criticizing them, judging them as less than. And we do that continuously over and over again. And we essentially make each make each other miserable. And you know, that's where that quote "hell is other people" kind of you know, lends itself to because that's what we do. We create hell for each other by the constant judgment and constant condemnation of each other. So with a quote like that, to think think yourself a, a creator and yet continuously judge people and con- continuously criticize people, there was a disconnect there that made me pause and kind of self-reflect. And a lot of you guys know, like I, I at the beginning of the year, the earlier part of the year anyway, I, 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 decided I was going to be more mindful, more co- more conscious of the things that come out of my mouth. Because what I told myself is, okay, we live in a dual reality, right? So if I can criticize verbally everything, if I can find something wrong with everything, I can also use that same mouth to speak on and find something right, find something good, find something beautiful in everything as well. So what I did was begin to start exercising just that instead of criticizing um, or complaining or condemning, um, complimenting and, um, showing gratitude, showing appreciation, um, and, uh, just overall, instead of finding something bad or wrong the person is doing, even if I am in the process of calling a person out for the negative things that they have done or are doing, 
making sure that I pause, reflect on one, how that's making me feel. And what I mean by that is being mindful of the ego and rather than being controlled by the ego, understanding that the ego wants you to condemn other people because it feeds itself. It, it makes it feel good. So being mindful of that, observing how condemning and criticizing other people does inflate your ego, does make you feel sort of very important. Um, it's not something that obviously it, you can do overnight to just stop criticizing. But when you are doing it, being able to be conscious of the fact that you're doing it, stopping yourself if you can. And if you can't, just share, just observing how it makes you feel. And as you're doing it, start breaking down and analyzing why it is that you're doing it. And then with awareness and not with restrictions, right? Um, not with resistance, right? But with awareness of exactly what you're doing, that's the first step. The more aware you make yourself of what you're doing, if it's like, okay, I'm going to focus on being critical, the more you make yourself aware and catch yourself when you're doing it, the more you're, or the less likely you are to repeat that behavior because now you've brought consciousness to the forefront and you've brought, aware, you've brought awareness to your forefront. And with that awareness, that consciousness is what destroys, or at the very least, disables the ego, right? So the majority of issues, the majority of problems that every single person has in this world, particularly, you know, soci socially speaking and, 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 you know, relationships and things of that nature are because of the ego. And what happens is a situation, you know, comes up and the <laughs> consciousness sort of leaves, the ego takes over and it just, it's a monster. It's a defense mechanism and it is willing to destroy any and everybody that's in its path in order to make itself feel safe or protected or whatever else that you, you know, whatever label you want to put on it. That's what ego does. So for me, as I've over the last few months worked on being mindful of when I do criticize, I'm not saying that I no longer criticize. Absolutely not. I still catch myself criticizing it's just an old habit it's like it's like you know smoking or drinking or something like that like it it's it, it is tough it's a tough habit I spent 35 years of my life you know doing the same thing the same action I don't expect I've only been doing you know working on being mindful and on of not engaging in criticism over the last few months I do not expect myself to completely you know diminish any desire to criticize, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, my day-to-day -day communications with people, um, because I'm not perfect. So the two, like I said, go hand in hand, understanding that the desire to be perfect is a type of neuroticism. Um, and also understanding that a creator doesn't criticize and kind of marrying the two is what I've been kind of putting in the forefront of my, my mind as the things that I want to, you know, achieve in life. What I'm starting to notice is just by doing these things that I said, you know, being mindful, instead of finding the things negative to say about what a person is doing, like reprogramming my mind to find the good thing first, or at the very least, if I can't find it first, follow up a criticism with an observation of something good that has happened. I have become more and more mindful, more and more conscious, more and more awake 
you know, I, I'm less forgetful, you know, from even a phys- uh, physiological perspective. And I would argue that people have been saying that I am more pleasant to be around. I'm not perfect. Nobody, wa- you know, walking on earth is. So I need to kind of reiterate that. I, oh, I almost, I'm, I almost want to say like, question our need as a, as an individual and as a society, this desire for things to be perfect. You know, I've spoken about this before, but I really, I really do grapple with that. Like, where did that come from? You know, and I've theorized and I've spoken about it in previous episodes that it's, you know, it's something to do with religion, something to do with societies, you know, our, the way we're programmed. But if nobody brings it to your attention that this thing that you are aspiring for, this thing that you're striving for, perfection, whether it's in your relationship, whether it's a perfect body, whether it's, you know, the perfect job, you know, these are things that people say they want. And you watch the, you watch this, this desire to achieve something that's completely unattainable. None of us will ever attain perfection in anything we do. It's not attainable, right? It's just not. It's just not. And yet we blindly pursue, we are blindly driven by this desire to attain perfection. And we can break this down, right? So you have, for example, uh, I have a friend of mine who is a male, but he has an obsession with um, his body. Um, And I think I talked about this, about how, you know, advertisers who are now being called out by women for basically putting out ads with photoshopped women that don't look like they don't have normal bodies and things of that nature what they're doing now is they're shifting that mindset that focus that toxic marketing strategy you know to uh, men and so as a result you're now starting to see men become more obsessed with their looks with their bodies you know comparing themselves to the models and the cover of men health men's health magazines and things of that nature you're seeing more and more of that um and, you know, people could argue, one could argue that, you know, that was always kind of there, but it's becoming amplified, particularly now, you know, with social media. So this friend, like, great, like, great form, great body in great shape, probably if you at first glance, like, as close to perfection as a human body, a male human body can probably get. But you you would think that he would be satisfied. You would think that he would look at his form, look at his body and say, you know what? Like I've got a six pack, my arms are defined. I look good, look at my legs. And, but he immediately focuses, like if you leave, if you compliment him and say, wow, like, you know, great job. He will immediately say, no, like I need to lose like more weight. And then he'll like grab like a pinch of fat and say like, you know, I'm fat here, I'm fat here, I'm fat here. And I go like, what? Who who are you competing with? Because if you are putting in all this work for, you know, the average person to look at you and think, wow, like that's something, um, you're already there. Like you've already achieved that. Nobody's looking at you and thinking, oh, but he's got like, you know, an inch of fat here, an inch of fat there. Like your body is better than probably like 99.9% of people that are out there. But when when the ego kicks into place, the unconscious keeps kicks into place, and the individual that you're interacting with essentially leaves the chat, so to speak, you know, proverbially, and their ego takes place, they can't hear you. And so as a result of this desire to 
be perfect to attain something that literally is like saying like wanting to be perfect is like saying I, I want to you know walk on water or I want to you know grow wings and fly you're never going to achieve it but somehow as a society we are programmed to believe that this is something that is actually attainable and a lot of people drive themselves insane and make themselves miserable and more or less create hell for themselves just from that desire alone right and um so you you see that with people in their bodies you see that in their relationship i had a conversation with my, with my other friend and she was talking to me about you know she's she's getting older now she's like you know late 30s and she's finally ready to settle down and she has not had a steady boy beautiful girl absolutely beautiful great sense of humor self-sufficient great job all of that she has all these things going for herself college graduate just a just a beautiful beautiful like woman would make a great wife make a great mom makes it she's a great friend um but she's been single forever and what i said to her was you know you you know, the longer you stay single, the harder it is, I think, to find a person to settle down with um, because you just get so used to um, being by your, being with yourself. And she said, you know, yeah, she totally agrees with that. And maybe eventually she's going to get online and try dating once, like, you know, this COVID thing is over. And I said, yeah, because, you know, I, I have a, another friend who now she's in her 40s. Same thing, has a lot going for her, beautiful young lady, um, all of that. But she's been single and now as she gets older it's harder and harder for her to find a mate and she said well what do you think is the problem if she has all these things kind of going for her and i said well she has this expectation for perfection she 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 the list of what she wants in a partner is very long and if you ask me i don't think that the person that she is looking for actually exists like it's a it's an entity that she created in her head and told herself that this is the perfect partner for me and now I'm going to go seek that out and I just personally don't think that that person exists and my friend said well why do you think that she creates you know this desire to you know have somebody or to pursue somebody or at least find somebody that clearly she's not going to be able to find and I said I think what I think is at the core of it is two things. One, you have a person who perhaps as a child was constantly criticized and, you know, was had parents who expected perfection from them, which I know this to be fact because, you know, this same friend, the one in her 40s had told me about the conversations that she's had with her mom, her mom specifically, about having to be the perfect shape, the perfect size, the perfect weight, you know, finding the perfect husband, getting the perfect job. Like these are things that her her own mother like instilled on her. And we had to kind of talk through these sort of past trauma and say like, first of all, your mom's not perfect. Why does she, why is she putting those sort of expectations on you and why do you feel compelled to take that on to yourself, you know? Um, but I, I said, you know, when a child is, you know, brought up by heavily critical parents, their internal voice, even though it sounds like their voice, is actually the voice of their, of their parents who, after 18 years, they, they leave the home they go now out into the world and they're hearing this voice. They're hearing, you know, this criticism. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You got to find the perfect mate. You got to, you know, have the perfect thing. That that becomes their inter 
internal monologue. And that internal monologue has been drilled into their head so hard and it's been programmed into their mind so hard that they can't even hear their own voice. They don't even know what they want. So they're living lives that are driven by other people. They're driven by their parents, which I spoke about this, I think three, four episodes ago about who told you that what your parents desire from you, right? These role, these roles, these, you know, mother, father, brother, sister, and all of the definition that comes with the role. Somebody, a human being just like yourself, programmed you to believe that their their opinions matter and should matter and should have an effect on the kind of life that you live. So as a child that's drilled into your head, then you become an adult and you go out into the world. And then finally, you don't know what you want and you find yourself chasing partners or wanting to be with a partner that's not your ideal partner. It's a partner that perhaps your mother or your father would desire for themselves and have projected onto you. That's not fair, right? That's not fair. And if you don't allow yourself to become conscious of what is really driving your actions, and if you don't pause and ask yourself, okay, screw all of these people. If these people weren't around, if my mother wasn't around, if my father wasn't around, if it was just me, you know, on my own having to make a decision, what do I want? What do I want? If there was nobody in my life that I was trying to impress, what do I want? If there was nobody in my life whose judgment I feared, what do I want? That's hard enough to do, first of all. And then taking that mindset and then operating on it, that becomes even harder for people. But I have challenged and I continue to challenge you guys to really sit and and think think on that because that really is the key to lifelong happiness when you decide to live your life for yourself. I'm not saying be selfish. I'm not saying, you know, any of that. I'm saying you cannot live for other people and you've got to really check and challenge the voice in your head and make sure that's actually you speaking to you and not your mother, not your father, not your sister, not your brother, not your siblings, not your children even influencing your behavior and influencing your life. Because at the end of the day, any actions that you engage in, you have to deal with the consequences right? Period. You're, you're carrying that route. And for the most part, if it is your parents that are, you know, driving your life, right? There's going to come a point where you're not going to see them that often because you're a full-blown adult now living your own life and you're probably far away as we all are. Like I'm in California, my parents are in Illinois. I see them maybe, maybe once a year, you know, in person. And with COVID, it's been like now two years. It, that becomes less and less. Their presence and their prevalence in their life, physically anyway, become less and less, um, I guess, prevalent. Um, however, the influence is still there. And um, I, I want to bring that to your attention because what comes with a lot of that is this crippling desire for perfection that's been instilled and ingrained into your brain by people who are not perfect, who... <laughs> aren't living perfect lives and we forget that because of the constant criticism because ideally not ideally but when when a person is extremely critical in our minds our brains interpret that constant critical criticism as like they are an authority right so you hear criticism and you accept what they have to say as an like okay well your brain interprets that and goes okay well they wouldn't be pointing this these things out as wrong, right? If they weren't an authority on said topic, right? So if you're an artist, right? A lot of artists 
fear putting their work out there because they are afraid of what people have will have to say and about their art and in their mind in their subconscious they're operating under the premise these are facts they're operating under the premise that somehow the viewing public has any idea right there there's some sort of authority on the creative process and that loops all the way back to how you know what i said at the beginning of the episode i keep repeating creators don't criticize the more i paint the more i draw the more I have the more respect I have for the creative process, you know, for being frank, because you, you, you know, it's one thing to look at a painting and go, oh, okay, that's nice. You know, it's even one thing to go look at a painting and go, oh, I could do that. Right. Which is a criticism in, in itself. It's another thing to sit consistently every day, get the canvas, get the paint out and sit for four hours, five hours, six hours. After doing that for a certain amount of time, so let's say, you have never directed a movie before, but you go and you walk out of the theater and the first thing that comes out of your mind, mouth is, that movie sucked, right? Like you're not a producer, you're not a filmmaker, you're not a director, you're just some person with no expertise whatsoever who somehow feels because you now have the ability to criticize and judge something, you're, you are now an authority on that thing you're judging. You have no authority to judge. You have the right to judge. You have the right to criticize. However, you don't have the authority to criticize. That's an implied authority based on the nature of a, crit- of a criticism, but doesn't mean that it's your, it's your, your authority, right? It's, it, 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 that's not how that works. But we are just, just like we operate on the assumption that, you know, Perfection is something that is attainable. It's not. Stop wasting your fucking time. You're not going to be perfect. It's okay. Accept yourself as you are. Of course, make improvements, like grow, right? But to to aspire to be perfect is just not going to, it's not going to happen. So that's just a waste of time. But to take it back to the, you know, the, the analogy of a movie um, uh, uh, critic, right? A lot of these film critics, a lot of people on YouTube that are like tearing apart, you know, the creative process, none of them actually have sat and created a piece. So our society is really backwards because we do go in and we do value the opinions of people who have never created something. And that's a problem. The more that I paint, the more I create. And and I've been painting, I paint every single, um, I'm not going to say every single day, like at least five days a week um, for five to seven hours a day, depending. Um, And the more work I put in, the more, the less inclined I am to judge or criticize another artist's work. And that's the same thing with even my self-improvement. The more I work on creating who I am as a person, right? Becoming more conscious, putting away, destroying the ego, right? Becoming, you know, a more positive person, a more encouraging, a more empathetic, more compassionate person, the less the less likely I am to criticize and judge other people because I know what it's like to be in that position and it increases my empathy, right? So as I'm in the process of creating myself, it allows me to sit back and go, okay, like, you know, I know what it's like to be there. Um, And somehow it just makes you 
less judgmental just as a person, right? So I'll, re I'll reiterate it. So the more I create, the less judgmental I become of other artists. So the more I work on myself, the, the, the less judgmental I become of other human beings. You just be, start empathizing with them and it happens automatically. A lot of people have said, like, how can you, like the previous episode, somebody, you know, has said to me, like, you know, how can you sit and say all these sort of things and point out, point out these things that we all see that Trump is doing, what he's doing to this country, and then at the end of the podcast, turn around and say, like, you know, but learn from him. Um, you know, there's something you can learn from it. And to me, I'm like, well, why is that a bad thing? Why is that a negative? You can literally learn from me. You can learn from every, you can learn from everybody. And if we are in this world and this life is supposed to be some kind of school, it's an esoteric school, some have said, um, it would be a waste to not, to not learn from this person. What, for better or worse, it, 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 would have been, it would be a mistake to not watch and wait and learn, you know, the law of karma. Now, November 3rd, this is either going to get reelected or he's not. If he is not reelected, then you've learned something, right? From watching all of his antics and you learn, okay, um, unilaterally across the board, karma, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I, I kind of tongue in cheek put out that episode, no karma for Donald Trump. Um, and, and I, and I hope I stand corrected, but you do learn something if he, if, you know, if he does lose, because then you go, okay, karma, just like when he got sick and ended up in the hospital, we all were like, yeah, that's fucking karma. And I think what I broke it down for is like, is that really karma? Or is that just a consequence of your actions? And I guess people have argued, um, that karma is, and those people, one of those people is actually me, and that karma isn't the spiritual thing. It's actually more consequence. Like if you're a dick, the consequences of you being a dick is that dick things happen to you, right? So if you're a negligent person who puts people's lives at risk, the consequences of you being a negligent person is that, you know, your life gets put at risk too, just as a consequence of that. Um, but there's something to be learned from that because if we are living living in a simulation, I will always bring up simulation theory in this podcast, just FYI. But if we are listening, if we are living in a simulation, then clearly there are rules. And you can't find yourself, you cannot find yourself on the ship, in the simulation, in a dream, whatever it is, and not pause and sit around. We, didn't, we don't have any manuals, right? We are just, you know... Subscribers in a game, we found ourselves. We wake up, we're conscious, we're looking around, and we go, "Okay, there are no rules to this. Um, we've got to learn, you know. Or there are rules to this, but it, we weren't handed the playbook, so to speak. So we've got to observe and learn the rules, and and then by observation, we can formulate our own theories and our own rules and behave, you know, accordingly. Which I've encouraged you guys to do. Um, but yeah, creators don't criticize, um, and I. <laughs> The more I, I make myself mindful of being conscious of not criticizing as much as possible. And if I, even if I am in the act of criticizing, if I catch myself criticizing, the key is that I caught myself and I, congla I, I congratulate myself for um, catching myself because that's me being conscious in a moment that under normal circumstances, I would have become unconscious, right? Checked out, um, and all of that, right? Lost my free will, giving it to the ego, all of that that comes with, um, you know, what I've termed you know, day walking, right? Where a lot of us are operating on, like, as NPC characters, so to speak, right? We're externally controlled, right? By reaction, right? by reacting to things that 
um, that happen to us, right? And a lot of our responses are automatic. And as Gorgiev says, like if you live your whole life just reacting to things, how can you claim to have free will? And he further argues that we don't have free will. A lot of people, the majority of people don't have free will for that precise reason. They aren't making conscious choices. They're not making mindful decisions. They're just going about life, reacting to things, right? Um, if I wake up and say, I'm going to have a good day, and then something happens, and then boom, I go, oh, my day is ruined. Well, where does my free will kick in? If an external circumstance that happened in a moment and that movement has, has gone by is now strong enough to basically derail my initial proclamation of I'm going to have a good day, right? So want to leave you with that, you know, with or start with that idea of creators don't criticize and understanding that you can blend the two, right? Creators don't criticize because when you wake up in a, in a reality like this and you observe that nothing, perfection does not exist. It is literally a pipe dream. It's a hallucination. It is yet another program instilled in our psyches, you know, by individuals that are no longer alive, alive rather, and still we are allowing their ideas to control us. When you, when you kind of can accept that, you walk around and you go, okay, I'm going to improve myself. I, I'm going to make myself a masterpiece with the understanding that part of becoming a masterpiece isn't to be perfect, right? Masterpieces aren't perfect, right? If you, if you look at, you know, the drawings of, uh, or paintings of Picasso, they're not what a person who was aspiring for perfection would create, right? Um, if you look at even a da Vinci, right? It's not like they're not anatomically balanced and things of that nature. Like you could tell that a human being created it, right? You could tell that this is a natural product. And what differentiates something that's natural for some, from something that is unnatural is that imperfection. Imperfection is okay. We should strive to accept our imperfections. And I think that that's the key to being the quote, perfect human. Um, you know, we have women with their bodies, you know, people with their relationships, you know, what a person feels like they need to aspire in order to be considered, um, aspire for in order to be considered a success, right? That constant need, you know, to achieve quote, perfection, knowing that damn well is not, it's not at all attainable is what drives a lot of people to depression, to um, discontent with life, right? And just constantly pursuing something that you're never going to attain. You're going to end up living your whole entire life never satisfied because you're striving for something that you're never going to attain, um, which just causes suffering um, for yourself. So hope all of that made sense. Um, next point. He, Osho, talked about he gave an interesting analogy. I believe it was in the Dhammapada volume three. I believe, don't hold me to that, but I believe it was the, it was Dhammapada volume three. And he talked about the fact that he said the first seducer, the first seducer was God. That was something that like really was another one of those like mind expanding, like thought provoking, like quotes of his. The first seducer was God. He said, you know, for the most part, when you tell people don't do something like that's seductive, right? He was tempting them towards rebel rebellion. Like if you don't want a person, and obviously we're running on the premise that the Bible is real. I personally don't believe it is, but you know, we're telling a story here. But if you're operating on the premise that 
this is a tree, right? You created these these individuals where you've you've explicitly stated that these people are ignorant, which is and you know that they're ignorant because they have not consumed from the tree of life, right, in the first place. So you know that they're ignorant. Why put the tree there? Why put the tree, you know, within their limit? It's like it's like having a child and saying, Hey, you see that piece of candy that I poisoned? Um, don't eat that piece of candy. And then you leave the piece of candy for a child in front of a child. Like who's at fault here? So something that he said that kind of struck to me was the first seducer was God. He's, and he juxtapositioned that to the devil. He said it wasn't the devil. The devil was just a messenger of God, which indirectly it is true. So the shaitan, um, where the, the, the biblical shaitan, and he I think is in the Torah as well, um, he is actually a type of messenger, a voice of God. He does God's will. He's like an enforcer of God's will. So God gave a law and the first law was do not eat from the tree of knowledge. And then the shaitan, the snake, was the enforcer who went forth to the Adam and Eve to and to ensure and to enforce and to make certain that the 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 man and the woman Adam and Eve would follow God's will. Who's at fault there? Especially if you know that the very thing that would allow them, the very thing that would allow the first man and woman Adam and Eve to know to listen to God or to know that not listening to God was quote bad was evil, right? Was the tree that you told them not to eat from. So let me, let me rephrase that. Now, he, he didn't say this. This is what I extrapolated from that, just based on him saying that the first seducer was God. So let me follow up with that. Or let me reiterate this. The tree of knowledge that allows a person to discern from good and evil, right? Adam and Eve had not yet eaten from the tree. So to then tell individuals who had not yet gained the ability to know whether or not disobeying you was right or wrong because they had not eaten from the tree. To then not eat from the tree and then punish them after they did something that they didn't know was wrong is kind of fucked up, right? But once again, that's if you believe in that story, um, I personally don't. That's just more for the sake of illustration. And I like uh, theology and um, it was just a different perspective that he pre- presented where you never heard that before. A quote, I've never heard a quote like that before to say like the first seducer was God. Um, that was, you know, very deep. And then, um, and then he went on to discuss knowledge and shame and the fall. Now to Osho, he's, he basically says that it's knowledge that causes us to feel shame right? Like if you didn't know something was wrong, right? If you weren't taught something was wrong, then you wouldn't feel shame. And so that it was the knowledge that actually was the fall of man, right? And what he equated knowledge to was um, like university, um, you know, learning things that's, that society, quote, has always done, right? And to me, that that ideology is something that I've been over the last two, three episodes, I've been kind of saying, you know, at an institution of higher learning, for example, what you learn in a college is it literally is a con- conglomeration of the thoughts, ideas, 
you know, rules, concepts of people who came before you, but there were people just like you, right? So they created this rule for whatever purpose, but they're not alive now. And you take their ideas and you collect them, you put them in a book, and then they put them in an institution. And with those books, you sort of, you're programmed and told that by absorbing their thoughts and their knowledge, you somehow are intelligent. And what he more or less, what Osho more or less is saying is that's not intelligence. That's not a measure of intelligence. Being able to remember something and then echo it is not a measure of intelligence. A great example he gave was of an intelligent woman and, um, and by intelligent, I mean a learned, a book, a book learned, institution educated woman, right? And she had, like, let's say it was like a contraption. And she read the instructions, the directions on how to turn on and operate the contraption, but it did not work. So she leaves to go find a an authority who will be better able to, I guess, discern the rules and everything like that. And when she comes back, the illiterate who couldn't read had figured out how to work this contraption. And so she said, well, how did you know what to do, right? And know being the key word, how did you, how did you have knowledge of how to operate this machinery? And the illiterate person said, was said was more or less like you are hindered by your knowledge. You're, you are hindered by the fact that you've been programmed to rely on you know, directions and instructions and the thoughts and the ideas of other people that came before you. I, as an, an illiterate person who can't read the thoughts, you know, of other people and the ideas of other people, I am forced to figure things out on my own, to come to my own conclusions. And so that makes that individual, the unlearned, who we're to, people who we are told in society are illiterate, it makes them more intelligent because there's nobody telling them how to think, right? They just are forced because there's nobody there with, okay, these are the rules. They're forced to sort of figure things out with their own intelligence. And on, on, on paper, when you look at that, who really is more intelligent? A person who can think in their own think on their own, right? Think on their own two feet or a person who needs the sort of instructions of other people. And if that is taken away, they can't adapt. I think the key is somewhere in the middle where, you know, you are mindful of the fact that it's one thing to have book knowledge, right? And, you know, that's your shtick. If that's your deal, that's me, right? I love learning. Um, and regular listeners know, like I've been through the gamut and I've shared most of the books that I read, you know, with you guys. And then, you know, over the last month, I've just, you know, uh, <laughs> just been super focused on Osho because of a lot of the stuff that I'm getting from him. It's like, wow, that I never thought about stuff like that before. Um, but be prepared with that book knowledge to be flexible in real time, right? To be adaptable in real time, to not become so rigid that you are incapable of adapting because, well, this is just how things always have been, right? That mindset, that idea of this is just what things have, this is just what we've always done is the enemy to innovation, whether it's in technology, whether it's in business, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in literally anything. If you just do things because this is what other people have done and this is just what it's always been done, once again, how can you call yourself free? right? Machines are incapable 
at least the majority of machines that we are aware of anyway. I'm sure there are now some machines that adapt and things like that. But <laughs> even with that, if there are machines that are capable of adapting once when presented with new information, then humanity is already below the curve because a lot of us seem to be incapable of that same adaptation. But I digress. Machines, it's only machines that if you give you know, a set of instructions, they have to follow that those instructions to the T. You call yourself a human being, you call yourself, you know, a, a, an entity with free will, then you should, on the spot, on the ground, once presented with new information or what, once pre presented with new challenges, adapt and, and adjust and, you know, grow, right? Become plastic, become like water, um, move, right? Innovate things of that nature. Um, and I have found in my experience that the more specialized an individual is, like if the more letters they have behind their name, the BA and then MA and then, you know, PhD and all of that, the less likely they are to think outside the box. And you see a lot of intellectuals that are book smart, but now they've lost what we call street smarts or common sense. Um, the idea is finding your, your middle ground and basically for having balance. So to bring back up the whole shame thing, because I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, what does knowledge have to do with shame? Well, let's talk about, let's think about Adam and Eve. So the whole time they were in, the whole time they were in the garden and they were nude, right? And it didn't really matter until that, that consumption of the tree of knowledge, or the fruit from the tree of knowledge taught them what nudity was and with that understanding of knowledge right what that knowledge was was a preconceived notion it was the idea of civilization saying you there is something wrong with you this is what is supposed to be this is somebody's concept of what perfection is is to be clothed this is somebody's concept of what a civil human being is right you start hearing the judgment you start hearing the criticism right this is the status quo that's what the quote tree of knowledge is a fruit from the tree of knowledge is this is the status quo that's what you learn when you go to the universities right this is what people think not realizing or forgetting the fact that every generation has its own set of mores mores its own set of norms it's you know we're, we are, as a society, adapting through time, right? But with that knowledge of, quote, knowledge, which is not even, it's not true knowledge, it's just programming, right? You start learning to be ashamed of who you are, of what you are, and you start to feel less than. So immediately once they got, quote, knowledge, they then, what that knowledge did is like, they start looking at themselves and think, Oh no, I'm imperfect. Oh no, you know, I'm I'm not clothed. Oh no, I'm naked. And being naked is wrong. And now I've got to do something to cover my nakedness, which is what literally all of us have been doing and are doing constantly. Um, wrapping it up. Um let let's let's really take that concept and 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 run with it. So ever since the fall of man, what our deep desire and drive to, quote, be perfect stems from a place, a mindset, a, a, 
an, a, a pre-programmed ideology that says that somehow the way we are, as we are in our natural form, is not enough, is not good enough. And so we must you know, shield ourselves, clothe ourselves, cover ourselves with all these other things. And you see a lot of people doing that, right? Um, I've got to, I'm not good enough just as I am. I've got to, you know, look a certain way, dress a certain way, you know, act a certain way, speak a certain way, right? It's, I don't want people to see me as I am, right? Because that knowledge has been, it doesn't have to be book knowledge. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, a, a bachelor's or PhD or whatever. It's not, it doesn't have to be formal education. That knowledge could also fall into, um, could also be categorized as just programming by society, right? These are the morals, like morals, these are the standards, these are the norms that society is instilled. That's the fruit of the tree of knowledge, right? So when you go on Instagram and you're scrolling through and her hair is perfect and her face has been, you know, photoshopped and her nose is tiny and her lips are pinched and, you know, her skin is flawless and she's got a six pack, that's that's the status quo. That's the fruit from the tree of knowledge. And then you start oh shit, I'm naked, right? I don't look like that. I don't, those people don't look like that. It doesn't matter. You're, you look at that and you go, I don't, I, I, I can't, I don't have that. I, I'm not perfect, right? That tree, that fruit from the tree of knowledge is this false perception. It is a mirage. It is a deception. It, you, you are, you, nobody is perfect. Even that person that you're aspiring to be has been photoshopped to death, you know, probably didn't eat for two, three weeks leading up to that Photoshop. I photo shoot. I know this because that's what I did <laughs> for years. That was my job. I was a model. So I know this. Um, it's not an attainable standard. And yet we are all programmed. We're all blinded. We're all poisoned by the fruit right? Poisoned by the fruit from the tree of knowledge. And that knowledge is a false knowledge because it's telling you you're not adequate. You're not okay just as you are, right? And so we consume, we, you know, we consume the apple, we consume the fruit and we seek to sheathe ourselves. We seek to clothe ourselves. And then we condemn other people, right? Because now that you've eaten the fruit, you can now turn around and go, oh my gosh, okay, I'm naked. But what what did Eve do to Adam? You're you're naked too, right? Cover your shame, cover your natural <laughs> being, cover what you are, be something else, and then we put these pressures on other people too. Because one, if we're criticizing other people, we we also assume this air of authority over them as a judge, which. I don't know if you paid attention, but when a person is a judge, right, a person who calls themselves a judge, a person who sits on a court as a judge, there is this idea, there's this air around them that says, you know, oh, well, you got to respect them because they're judging you. We forget when they've donned that rope that that's just a human being just like you who is capable of and probably has committed worse things than you have, right? It's that same illusion. It's that same mirage that that fruit within itself, the fruit of the tree of knowledge blinds you, um, you know, poisons you. It's like a, it's, it's consider it like a hallucinogen, right? It, it distorts. Ooh, that's deep. Yeah. It distorts the tree. Um, the fruit from the tree of knowledge is like a hallucinogen and distort, distorts your perception of reality. So we're judging, we start by judging ourselves and then we turn around and judge other people in order to distract from our own nakedness, from our own failings, right? And then we're just going around making each other miserable because of the fact that now we've consumed 
this fruit and now we think that okay this is the standard we're all falling short but i don't want to be i don't want to seem like i'm falling short when that person's falling short and the idea is if i'm pointing my fingers away from me and i can get other people to look in that direction then nobody looks at me right so it's all a defense mechanism it's all ego kicking into place so i said all that to say this the next time you are in a conversation with a person and they lash out at you it's hard to remember, but this has helped me pausing and understanding that, you know, proverbially, proverbially, they have eaten from the tree, right? they've eaten the fruit from the tree of knowledge. And, and that tree of knowledge is, you know, the mores, the laws, the status quo, the programming, all of that, that have been instilled in their minds by their parents, by society, right? That's controlling them. And it's a defense mechanism. They're trying to get you to not look at them because they feel naked. They feel ashamed, right? And they're trying to distract, you know, people are constantly trying to cover their shame, like just look around, makeup, right? They feel like, okay, I don't look a certain way. Let me, I'm ashamed that I don't look perfect physically. So let me cover my shame with makeup. I'm ashamed that my hair isn't as thick and bouncy and luxurious. So let me, you know, fill my hair with hair extensions. I'm ashamed that I don't look like an important person. So let me buy a car or house that I don't, you know, I can't afford. Shame, 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 cover, cover, cover. Remember that. Remember that they're in the same position as you. Don't attack if you can. They are just as much victims of our society and the programming of society spanning over, was it 10,000 years of civilization, right? They're just as much as victims of the programming of society as you are and have compassion and have empathy. And remember, you know, work on creating yourself. And to me, creating yourself to me is more becoming yourself, right? And putting aside, taking, sitting back and sitting aside, putting aside all of the things that your family, you know, have told you that you need to be, your friends have told you you need to be, your parents and all these expectations that have put on you, that's not who you are. So you've got to shed all of that and become what you want to be, right? Which is basically how you create yourself. And once you work on creating yourself, recreating yourself, then you become a less critical person because creators don't criticize. All right, guys, thanks for listening.